welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are in chapter 7 of the book of Jeremiah. The first six chapters of Jeremiah has been God laying out his case against Israel. Now in chapter 7, we begin seeing the commission that God is giving to Jeremiah, the assignment that he is giving him. And one more time, God is emphasizing the guilt of Israel in order to emphasize that Jeremiah has to say exactly what God tells him to say. And as God is telling him, instructing him, God also says, they're not going to hear you. As much as you talk to them, they're not going to listen. But you're going to tell them anyway. You're going to say it. They're going to be responsible for the fact that I have sent them a prophet and that I have told them beforehand what is going to happen. But they're not going to listen to you. And the first thing that God goes after, which I find a really interesting thing for God to concentrate on, the first part of the chapter is about how the people of Jerusalem relate to the temple of Yahweh. Because people don't change. People are the same today as they were in ancient Israel. People have a tendency to put a great deal of stock in the religion of God or in whatever their particular religion is. In Israel's case, they were putting a great deal of stock in the religion and their connection to the temple of God rather than their connection directly to God. And so God is castigating them in many ways for the fact that they have turned the temple into a sort of talisman, like a lucky charm, like nothing bad can happen to us. Look, the temple. We live where the temple is, so nothing bad can happen. And before you're too hard on them, I mean, I have Catholic friends who still keep little statues of saints on their dashboard because they think it keeps them safe while they're driving or they wear St. Christopher medals or for heaven's sakes even Madonna in the early days every time that you saw her in one of her videos she was wearing a cross was she promoting Christianity well no she was wearing it like a talisman like some kind of a lucky charm and so people today still connect to these objects, these physical objects that they think are a representation of the presence of God in their life in order to keep them safe from the pain and the difficulties of this lifetime rather than actually connecting with God himself. And so that's what God is about to hold Jerusalem particularly guilty for is they're connecting 
to the temple and going and sacrificing at the temple and showing up on a regular basis in the temple rather than actually being obedient to God. And that is the contrast that he's going to draw here, that they are not obedient to his law. They are following after other gods. They are chasing after other things other than Yahweh. And yet they keep coming to his house and then also worshiping him as if he is an add-on to their life. And so he holds them guilty for that. Like, no, 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 I'm not just something you can have in addition to make your life better. You have to be utterly, completely obedient to me. And he starts with rules like, you'll have no other God before me. And then don't make any graven images because he is singular. He is not only primary, but he is singular. So he holds them guilty for their lack of obedience to him. And then he, I think in a sort of sarcastic way, is going to say, when I gave these rules to your forefathers, I didn't have a conversation with them about it. I didn't ask them what they think about it. I didn't look for their input. I didn't say, what do you think? Should you do some of this, part of this, mix it in with some other stuff? No. What I said is, do it, and I expect obedience, and I don't have to explain to you. And so he is very, very clear, very, very precise in saying that if you are connected to me, you have to be utterly and completely connected to me, and you demonstrate that connection through your obedience to me. And that is what he is going to hold them guilty for in the first part of this chapter. So, let's start chapter 7, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates, to worship the Lord. So specifically, he's standing in the gate of the temple in order to say these words to the people who were going into the temple so that he can say, Yahweh holds you guilty for the fact that you're coming to his temple and treating it like a good luck charm rather than worshiping him. And if you were truly worshiping him, you'd be obedient to him. But you are not obedient to him. Therefore, what are you doing in his house? And so stand at the Lord's house, at the gate, and proclaim there this word, saying, Hear the word of Yahweh, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and amend your deeds. And I will let you dwell in this place. In other words, you will continue in Jerusalem if you're obedient to me. I brought you here from Egypt. I protected you from your enemies. I protected you from the wild animals. I brought you to a land of milk and honey. I expect absolute obedience to my rules, to my laws, to the way that I have set you up as a society and as a theocracy. And so... Change your ways. Right now, your ways are disobedient. Right now, your ways are in rebellion. If you change them, 
I'll let you remain here. But of course, they're not going to change. They're not going to listen to him. And he is going to take them out of there. And he's going to destroy that temple in which they are trusting. <coughs> Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words. In a moment, he's going to tell you what those deceptive words are. And the deceptive words sound like this. The temple of Yahweh. The temple of Yahweh. We have the temple of Yahweh. And no other countries have that. No other nations have that. No other people have that. We have it. Therefore, we conclude that God is on our side. And he's not going to let anything bad happen to us. Even the prophets were saying that. And God says, these are deceptive words. Don't trust those words. Trust my word. How do you demonstrate that you trust my word? You're obedient to it. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of Yahweh. The temple of Yahweh. The temple of Yahweh. It's said three times for emphasis, God demonstrating that they were treating his temple like a talisman, like I said. So Jeremiah points out to Israel that there is this past fallacy that that, that they've had forever that people still have to this very day of believing that the mere presence of God's temple was somehow going to avert their disaster. And so he's going to ask them to remember what happened in the last place of worship that God assigned previous to David moving the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, it had dwelt at Shiloh. And what did God do at Shiloh? So God is going to say, remember, I've already done this once. I've already chosen a place of worship and then destroyed it. And yet you seem to think that just because the temple is in your midst, that you're safe, that you're fine. This is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien or the orphan or the widow, if you do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you continue to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your forefathers forever and ever. Now, that's really interesting because God admits, this is the land that I gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob forever. It's a continual covenant. In particular, that covenant, that land promise, went to Ephraim, who was in the Assyrian captivity at that very moment. And God is reminding Judah Yes, you're going to get to stay here if you're obedient to me, if you operate societally the way that I've told you to operate, if you emphasize justice between a man and his neighbor and that there's no oppression against those who can't help themselves and who certainly can't help you, if you don't shed any innocent blood, if you're not walking after other gods, I'll let you continue to dwell in this land, but this land belongs to you and your descendants forever. 
which is why God, through Jeremiah, is going to say that the Chaldean, Babylonian captivity is going to be 70 years, long enough to destroy that generation and then bring the next generation back. The same way as when he took them out of Egypt, he marched them through the wilderness for 40 years so that the older generation would all die off. And only those who were under 20 years of age when they left Egypt actually got to go into the promised land. So now God is going to say, even though I've promised this land to your fathers forever and ever, behold, you are still trusting in these deceptive words to no benefit, to no avail. Will you steal? Will you murder? Will you commit adultery? And swear falsely. By the way, those are all right in the top ten. Don't do any of those. That's right in the commandments. Are you going to offer to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name. And then say, we are delivered. So that you may do all these abominations. You continue to live in opposition to my law, in rebellion to my law. You continue to steal and to murder and to commit adultery, to swear falsely, to chase after other gods, to walk after gods that your forefathers had not known, these foreign gods from the nations around you. And then after all that, you come into my house and you think that just because you're here in the temple that I'm going to protect you? that I'm going to ignore all the other things you have done, and so you're safe from your enemies because you've come to me and sacrificed after you got done sacrificing to Baal? Do you really think I'm that blind, that ignorant? How can you come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and then say, we are delivered, so that you can continue to do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Now, if you were to go look at Matthew 21, and actually it's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, that Jesus went in to cleanse the temple in his day. And the chief charge that he had against the leaders of Jerusalem was that they had turned God's house of prayer into a den of thieves. Both times when God said, you've turned my temple into a den of robbers, he then brought the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar in and they destroyed the temple. And then it was rebuilt, finished up during the time that Jesus was actually walking the planet And Jesus walks in and says, once again, you've done the same thing. You've turned it into a den of thieves and a place of robbers. And so then God brought Rome in and destroyed the temple again. So you would think that by the time that Jesus was on the planet, they would know their own history. They would know, you know, the last time we did this, God drove us into captivity and then destroyed the temple. But they don't learn because people don't learn. 
because people love their traditions. They love to go back to their own flesh and their own desires and their own enrichment, their own egocentricity, their own narcissism. Let's just do it again anyway. Maybe it'll be different this time. And it's never different this time because God is consistent. And that's why God here finishes by saying, you've turned it into a den of robbers. And behold, I know it. I've seen it. I know what you're doing. So it doesn't matter how many times people abuse the temple of God. It doesn't matter how many times people abuse the church of God in order to enrich themselves, in order to draw followers to themselves so that they can lead them astray. It doesn't matter. There's nothing new under the sun. God is aware of Everything that is going on in his temple or in his church or in the body of Christ, God is watching and God knows. And when people use it rebelliously for their own self-satisfaction and ego, God knows. And God has a history of not only destroying the temple because of that, but Jesus, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, talks about how the seven candlesticks right there in his hand. And then he makes threats like, change, repent, or I'll remove your candlestick. I will take you out. And yet people don't seem to understand that God actually will respond to that sort of rebellion by taking you down, by destroying your temple, your church, your assembly, because God, Jesus, determine your dedication to them based on your obedience to them. Are you listening to their words? Are you responding to what they have to say? Or are you saying, yeah, a little bit of God, a little bit of Jesus, but also this other stuff over here. You know, he won't care if I just happen to burn my children and then come to the temple of God. That's fine. He won't care if I'm taking my my drink libations and my sacrifices to Baal and then also coming to his temple. And yet God says, I know it, I see it, I'm aware of every single bit of it. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. But go now, To my place, which is in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people, Israel. So he tells the folks there, if you don't think I'll wreck Jerusalem, remember that the first place where my worship was set up was when my Ark of the Covenant when my tabernacle in the wilderness was set up in Shiloh and I decided that was going to be the place where my name was going to dwell for a period of time. Now you go back because it's near you. You go back there and you look at it and you decide whether I will destroy places where I once placed my name. Shiloh is where the tabernacle of God first dwelt. You can read about it in Joshua 18.1, in Judges 18.31, in 1 Samuel 1.3, and then chapter 4, 3-4. You can read about Shiloh and how God assigned Shiloh as the place of his worship initially. But 
after Israel went to war with the Philistines and the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, remember when that happened? Those of you who were there, uh, do you remember when that took place? You can read about it in 1 Samuel 4, especially verses 10 and 11. The Philistines actually captured the Ark of the Covenant, and then the priests apparently fled to Nob. 1 Samuel 22:11 talks about that. And then Shiloh was abandoned as Israel's central worship place. Here, I'll show you. Keep your finger here in Jeremiah. Go back into the Psalms for a minute and go to Psalm 78. Now, Psalm 78 is a maskil of Asaph. This is not David writing. But I'm going to start reading at verse 56. It is a long psalm. And this is really Asaph repeating the history of God and Israel, of God's dealings with Israel. And we just want to center in on this one particular part where he talks about Shiloh. Starting at verse 56, it says, Yet they tempted and rebelled against the Most High God. And they did not keep his testimonies, but they turned back and they acted treacherously like their fathers, and they turned aside like a treacherous bow. For they provoked him with their high places, the places of worship on the top of the hills and in the groves. For they provoked him with their high places, and they aroused his jealousy with their graven images. And when God heard, see, God says, I saw it, I know it. When God heard it, when he saw it, when he became aware, he was filled with wrath, and he greatly abhorred Israel, so that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent, the tabernacle, which he had pitched among men. And he gave up his strength to captivity. In other words, he let the Philistines capture the very place where they were told to meet with God, the very place where they would come to the Ark of the Covenant in order to make restitution before God once a year, at the atonement, at the Day of Atonement. And he gave up his strength to captivity. And his glory went into the land of his adversary. And he also delivered his people over to the sword. And he was filled with wrath at his inheritance. Fire devoured his young men, and his virgins had no wedding songs. By the way, at the end of the very chapter in Jeremiah that we're reading, when Jeremiah describes that God is going to take away happiness and joy and mirth and merrymaking from Jerusalem, he uses that very example, that there's going to be no more weddings, no more joy. His priests fell by the sword, and his widows could not weep. And then the Lord awoke as if from sleep, like a warrior overcome by wine, and he drove his adversaries backwards, and he put on them an everlasting reproach. Okay, so this is the history again of what happened at Shiloh. God abandoned Shiloh and then made it so that the Israelites could no longer worship at Shiloh by allowing the Philistines to take the Ark of the Covenant, which was central to their worship of Yahweh. God did all that as a punishment against Israel 
And now God himself brings that up here in Jeremiah 7 in verse 12 and says, Go look at the place that was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first. See what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Again, you'd think they'd learn. He's saying, I did it once. I'll do it again. Verse 13. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called to you, but you would not answer, therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, that temple in Jerusalem, in which you're trusting, and to the place which I gave to you and your fathers, I'll do the same thing I did to Shiloh. So he's giving them an object lesson. Go look at Shiloh. Archaeologically, it became destroyed, probably around 1050 BC, probably by the Philistines. It became a deserted area as part of that northern kingdom that was taken into the captivity of the Assyrians. So the point of Jeremiah's message is what God did to Shiloh, he was also going to do to the temple. If Judah didn't change her ways, then God was going to thrust her from his presence just the same way as he had done to the northern kingdom, Ephraim, back in 722 B.C. You can read about that in 2 Kings 17. And so God has a history of being provoked by his people and then punishing his people while at the same time declaring that he's not going to make a complete end of them and that the land does belong to them forever in perpetuity. But generation by generation, he's perfectly willing to bring generations into captivity in order to punish them, in order to demonstrate the necessity of his worship and obedience to him. He's done it before. He's doing it again. And I think we need to sit up and pay attention to that because he'll do it again. Jesus said it. I'll remove your candlestick. Obedience to God is not optional. It is something that God demands, and importantly, he knows. He sees. Verse 13 again, and now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early, meaning I didn't wait. I've been warning you from the beginning. I gave you my commands right at the start, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. And therefore, I will do to this house, which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave to you and your fathers, I will do as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. Ephraim and the northern kingdom were in captivity at that point. For chasing after other gods, you would think that would be an object lesson for the people in Jerusalem. And that's why God said, you're more guilty than Ephraim, because you saw what I did to them. And then you went on anyway, chasing after your foreign gods. As for you, he's now talking to Jeremiah in verse 16. As for you, do not pray for this people. 
He's saying, don't you try to intercede for them. Don't get between me and them. You go say what I told you to say, but don't you pray for this people, and don't you lift up a cry or a prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out libations to other gods in order to spite me. Now, before you think, okay, well, that's really ancient stuff. Then Israel did that a long time ago, those foolish people. That language still exists to this very day, primarily within the Catholic Church. The Queen of Heaven here is probably a reference to Ishtar, and one of her nicknames was the Queen of Heaven, historically. But now the Catholic Church refers to Mary by that very same terminology. It's the Queen of Heaven. God held them guilty because the whole family was involved. The children would go gather the wood, the fathers would kindle the fire, and the women would knead the dough, and they would make cakes. That doesn't mean like they were making cakes like we think of cakes. They were making little round grain-type cakes, like flatbreads, to the Queen of Heaven, to worship, to adore the Queen of Heaven. In a Catholic Mass to this day, the priest will hold up what he calls the host, which is a little round cake that is made to the Queen of Heaven. And he holds it up and they adore it. And they worship it. And then they consume it. Okay, so you would think, again, if people had any brains at all, they would look back at the history of the things God has said... He has said, don't do that. And that is part of every single mass, every single week within the Catholic Church. Because people don't change. God says, don't do it. And a couple thousand years later, they're still doing it. They just do it under a different name. But do you think if you change the name from Samirimus, from Ishtar, to Mary, do you think God can see through that? Sure, because this is the God who said, I see it, I know it, I know what you're doing. So here is God yet again saying, be obedient to me and don't do this. And his people go, yeah, we hear you. You know, we're going to do your thing, but then we're also going to do our thing. You know, we're going to mix and match some stuff. The children gather wood and the fire, and the fathers kindle the fire, and women knead the dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out libations to other gods in order to spite me. Do they spite me, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves they spite to their own shame? God saying, you didn't hurt me. I'm God. I'm in heaven. I'm fine. I'm omnipotent. I'm sovereign. You didn't do any damage to me, but I'm going to damage you. I'm going to punish you for the way that you have followed after these other gods and these other forms of worship to 
these gods of your imagination and to these things that are actually demonic. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, says verse 20, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast and on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and it will not be quenched. Did that happen? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that temple was utterly destroyed and destroyed with fire when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians took Jerusalem. So, does that mean that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon did exactly what Yahweh said they were going to do? Yeah. Yeah, they did. Unbelievers who didn't know the God of Israel accomplished exactly what the God of Israel said they were going to do because God was in the process of correcting his people and using large masses of foreign people in order to do the correcting. And then God was going to turn around and punish Babylon because they had punished his people. Really, really sovereign God. But he can use Anything he wants in his creation, he's that sovereign in order to accomplish his will. And in this case, he said, it is my anger, it is my wrath that's being poured out on this place, but I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar and his armies to do it. But it's me, it's my wrath. Verse 21, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. Okay, that's a direct command. Do that. Now, do you know what the reason was to do that? Because I said to. That's what God's about to argue. Here's what he says. For, verse 22, for I did not speak to your fathers or command them in those days that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. In other words, I didn't converse with them about it. I didn't ask for their input. I didn't ask what they thought about it. I commanded them. I brought them out of Egypt, and I told them what to do concerning my burnt offerings and my sacrifices. So now you add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh of it. Why? You don't get to ask because I told you to, and I'm God, and you're my people. Do it. Verse 23. But this is what I commanded them, saying, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in all the way which I command you so that it may be well with you. So it's so interesting that God would say through Jeremiah to these people, you don't get an opinion. Instead, you need to do exactly what I told you to do because when I told your fathers to do it, I didn't have a conversation with them about it. I didn't ask them what they thought about it. I simply told them to do it and I commanded them to do it. And this is what I commanded them. I said, obey my voice. I'll be your God, you will be my people, and you'll walk after my way, which I command you. So do it. You don't get an option. You don't get an opinion. You don't get a choice. And yet, verse 24, and yet they did not obey or incline their ears. They walked in their own counsel and in the stubbornness of their evil hearts. 
And they went backward and not forward. Since the days that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this very day, I have sent you my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them to you. And yet they did not listen to me. They did not incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck and they did evil even more than their fathers. Now this directive, verse 27, again to Jeremiah, and you shall speak all these words to them. But they won't listen to you. God knows in advance that their hearts are hard. And he knows their history, which is that, as he just said, I've sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, warning them and telling them. And they didn't listen. And they hardened their necks, stiffened their necks, hardened their hearts against me. So now I'm sending them you. They're not going to listen to you either. But you still go say it, whether they'll listen or not. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of Yahweh their God or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away. I've already done that, by the way. Um, that was a sign of repentance. This was a sign of mourning before God, and it would demonstrate that not only was Jeremiah warning Jerusalem, but that he was lamenting over Jerusalem as he was doing it. Cut off your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken that generation of his wrath. So that particular group of Israelites, that particular group of Judahites who lived in Jerusalem at that particular time were the generation that were going to be taken into the Babylonian captivity. Again, God was not going to make an utter destruction of them. He was going to continue them because the Messiah had to come out of Judah. So he had to maintain at least a remnant of them during their 70 years in Babylon. And also he was going to bring them back to that land because the land belongs to them through their forefathers in perpetuity forever and ever, which also gives us a good insight into the day and age in which we live. At the time, Israel, since 1948, has been occupying that land over there again. I mean living in, not occupying like the Palestinians would argue. But they're living in that land again, and yet they have not establish the true worship of God. There is no temple over there. There is no Ark of the Covenant. There is certainly lawlessness going on over there. And God has already shown what he's going to do to them, how he's going to correct them yet again. And he's going to continue in this pattern. This is the pattern of Israel where God delivers them. And then that generation does well for a while. Their children and grandchildren come along, forget about what God has done. They get fat and happy. They start rebelling again. And then God has to correct them all over again. That is the pattern of the history of God's dealings with Israel. And it's still going on to this very day. And because God hasn't changed and because God knows generation by generation, every so often he has to take a generation of them and correct them, even though in the big scheme of things, he's not going to utterly lose them. 
And he is going to ultimately restore them into their land because it is their land forever and ever. And yet every once in a while, a generation has to be corrected. And that was the generation that Jeremiah was speaking to. The Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. Okay, so they walk in and say, it's the house of Yahweh, the house of the temple of Yahweh. And yet they're bringing their idols with them. Their carvings of their own hands. The libations that they poured out earlier to the foreign gods. And yet they bring them into the house of God, which defiles the house of God. And then verse 31 says, And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. God never even considered it as a possibility that as part of his worship, you were supposed to sacrifice your children to him. And yet there were foreign gods who required child sacrifice and the burning of children. And they were doing that, which thing was detestable to God. And they were doing it in the places of Topheth, which are in the valley of the sons of Hinnom. Okay, so... That's outside the city, the high places of Topheth. You can read about them, and it's going to come up a couple times here in Jeremiah. They're located in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, or the sons of Hinnom. And then later it became simply called the Valley of Hinnom. If that's sounding familiar to you, it's because Jesus also pointed at it. That's the place where they practice child sacrifice and they burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. You can read God saying, don't do that, and accusing them in 2 Kings 21 or 2 Chronicles 33, because God is very clear, you do not put your children through the fire to sacrifice them to foreign gods. They're my children. They belong to me. Now, the origin of this word topheth is a bit uncertain, probably it means a cook stove or an oven, which would be appropriate considering that that's the place where they were burning their children. But it became known eventually as the high place of shame, and it was located in the valley of Hinnom, which was immediately southwest of the city. And it was in that valley that the refuse that came out of that city was burned. And you got to figure a city the size of Jerusalem is going to have a lot of refuse. You got people, you got animals, you got a lot of stuff you got to get rid of. So it was taken to that particular valley, the Valley of Hinnom, and that's where it was burned. As a consequence, because of the amount of methane that was there and the amount of garbage that was thrown into it, the fire burned continually in Hinnom. And the worm that ate the refuse there, those worms never slept, and that fire was never quenched. The Greek name for the Valley of Hinnom is Gehenna. That word Gehenna, in many of our translations in the New Testament, 
is translated as hell because Jesus himself pointed at the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, in order to say that's what eternal condemnation is like. The fire is never quenched, and the worm never sleeps. And all the way back here in Jeremiah, God points it out and says that's the place where you are burning your children. That is the place that became known as the high place of shame. That is the place where ultimately the refuse to be burned out of the city of Jerusalem all came to rest. So if you want to read about the fiery corruption of hell in like Matthew 5, 22 and 29 to 30. And by the way, even Peter brings it up in 2 Peter 2. God vowed to name this place eventually the Valley of Slaughter because of the great number of dead bodies that were going to be burned after the destruction of Jerusalem. And as he calls it the Valley of Destruction, the Valley of Slaughter, he includes in that prediction that the birds and the beasts are going to be there eating the carcasses, which, by the way, confirms the Mosaic Covenant. And we're going to look at that to close the night off. I'm running up against the clock right now, so I'm trying to be quick. Back in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 32, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the sons of Hinnom, but it will be called the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there's no other place to bury. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. And no one is going to frighten the birds away. And then I will make to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride for the whole land will become a ruin. Now, when God says that, we have to adjust our thinking accordingly to realize that's the kind of God we're dealing with. We talk a lot about the fact that God is faithful, and we're so very grateful that God is faithful, especially when we're thinking about his promises of salvation and redemption, and that when he sent his son to redeem us, he doesn't change. He doesn't alter his mind or his promises or his ways because he is a faithful God. But part of that faithfulness includes that once he has said it, even if it is a curse, He's still going to keep his faithfulness. He's still going to keep his word. And that is exactly what we're seeing here at the end of chapter 7 of the book of Jeremiah. He has just said that there are going to be dead bodies that are going to be food for birds. And there's going to be no joy throughout the land. No voice of gladness, bridegrooms, the voice of brides. That that is all going to be destroyed. Why? Well, it's because... In his law, he specifically said, if you do these things, well, let's go look at it. Turn to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28. I'm going to start reading at verse 15. 
But it shall come about, if you will not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, with which I charge you today, notice he commands them to do it, he charges them to do it, he does not ask them for their input about it. If you break those, if you don't observe those, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground. The increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed you shall be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with the blight and with mildew. And they will pursue you until you perish. And the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze. It'll be brass and the earth which is under you shall be iron. And the Lord will make the rain of your land into powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them, but you shall flee seven ways before them. And you shall be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the world and your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth and there shall be no one to frighten them away it's exactly what jeremiah just said the lord will smite you with the boils of egypt and with tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed, the Lord will smite you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart. And you shall grope at noon as a blind man gropes in darkness. And you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually with no one to save you. And if you betroth a wife, but another man shall violate her, you shall build a house, but you shall not live in it. And you shall plant a vineyard but you will not use its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Your donkey shall be torn away from you and shall not be restored to you. Your sheep will be given to your enemies and you shall have none to save you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes shall look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do about it. A people whom you do not know shall eat up the produce of your ground and all your labors, and you shall never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually, and you shall be driven mad by the sight of what you see, and the Lord will strike you to your knees and strike your knees and your legs with sores and boils from which you cannot be healed. From the sole of your foot to the crown of your head, the Lord will bring you 
and your king, whom you shall set over you, to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you will serve other gods of wood and of stone, and you shall become a horror and a proverb and a taunt among all people where the Lord will drive you. And you shall bring out much seed to the field, but you shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. And you shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you shall not drink of the wine, nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall devour them." And you shall have olive trees throughout your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, for your olives will drop off. You shall have sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the produce of your ground. The alien who is among you shall rise above you higher and higher, and you shall go down lower and lower. And he shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. And he shall be your head, and you shall be the tail. So all these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you would not obey Yahweh your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. And they will become a sign and a wonder on you and your descendants forever, because you did not serve the Lord with joy and with a glad heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord shall send against you in hunger and in thirst, in nakedness and in lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. And the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old and show no favor for the young. Moreover, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed, who also leaves you no grain, no wine, no oil, nor the increase of your herd, nor the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. Okay, that's a promise from God, and it was all predicated on, do what I told you. Obey. Don't argue about it. You don't get an opinion. Do it. And what did they do? They didn't do it. They ignored him. And he told them way in advance. He was bringing them into the land of Israel when he told them all that. Obey me. It's going to go great for you. Disobey me. I will destroy you. So here's Jeremiah standing at the temple saying, Look, God already told you what he's going to do. God has already made you promises of what he's going to do. God has already, in his faithfulness, told you that he would destroy you if you did the very things you're doing right now, and you're nothing but guilty. What else do you expect from the God who is sovereign? And we got to remember that's the God we're dealing with. And when he says... Don't trust in anything but me and my son, then we can't trust in anything but Christ and God. Amen. Because that's what he said. And you, to put a fine point on it, don't get an opinion. 
for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.